Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the first day of December on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And we're still hoping you will fill out a survey to let us know a few things about how you found this podcast, what you like about this podcast, and how you use it. Please fill it out at Cleveland.com slash Today Survey. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. Seth Richardson normally joins us, but he is taking a well-deserved time off. Happy Wednesday. Happy Chris- Wednesday. Christmas 24 days away. I was <laughs> I was feeling like this might feel like a long week after a week off, but so far it's not. So it's racing that. by. I'm like, I got up today. Is it, was, is it really Wednesday? Is no, it- I kept thinking it was Tuesday, which is usually yeah. the opposite. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing when the week races ahead. Okay, let's begin. Do Ohio Republicans seeking Rob Portman's U.S. Senate seat next year have to be rich beyond all get out to run? What does some new filing show about the two candidates for whom details were lacking earlier? Lisa, these guys are loaded. They are. And actually, it falls right in line in, in the fact that two thirds of our U.S. senators are millionaires or better. But yeah, we hadn't heard any financial disclosures from J.D. Vance and Mike Gibbons until earlier this week when they finally filed J.D. Vance. Uh, and it's weird how they have these ranges, you know, so you don't really know because J.D. Vance says he, well, he has four point three million to 10.5 million in personal and family assets and then of course in 2020 he got a million dollars from his book hillbilly elegy royalties from that and he has a couple of venture capital firms and a self-named business and he he couldn't avoid giving us a shot he filed the day before thanksgiving he says i'm gonna make those media scumbags work for it which is why he filed it right before right before a holiday just kind of a chuckle and, and guess I what make... it didn't work we didn't cover it until now so <laughs> right. and it makes the me... jokes on you you didn't even make news and yeah he yeah and he got some money from peter thiel who's like a silicon valley guy who gave him 10 million dollars from a super PAC to support uh, vance's senate run and he's invested in a lot of companies jd vance that is including rumble which is a youtube like app that's favored by right wingers and he's got a town home in dc that's worth anywhere from half a million to a million dollars and he's got some money in bitcoin and then the other guy that just filed recently mike gibbons who's a cleveland business guy and investment banker he has quite a range in his assets, anywhere from $83 million to $286 million in assets. But he's got about $88 million in liabilities, mostly on mortgages. He has a, a lot of real estate holdings. He also has $1 to $5 million in stock in Lordstown Motors, which was the one that was going to create a, you know, a electrical vehicle trucks. And he's got a house in North Carolina that's about one to five million. Again, these big ranges and what their assets are. We also heard from a guy who I'd never heard of until today, 
Mark Pukita is a U.S. Senate candidate. He's an IT company owner. He has millions in stocks, bonds, and cash, and he earned about $1.5 million in the reporting period. So yeah, lots of money rolling around, except for Tim Ryan. Of course, he filed earlier. He's the Democratic candidate. His assets were 85000 to 276000 so well under a million there. It, it is striking to me that these folks who are running to get rural Ohio votes, and rural Ohio is not wealthy. It's the opposite of wealthy, large pockets of poverty. They're not really men of the people or women of the people. They're all filthy rich, and yet they're holding themselves out as, I'm one of you. And, and it works. And the, the, the people in rural Ohio are nodding like, yeah, you're one of us. And there's, they, they have no idea what it's like to live in rural Ohio. Vance tries to hold himself out as that because he says he came from there. But, I mean, I don't think any of these guys understood what it was like to wonder if they were going to be able to feed their families during the pandemic. And yet they're claiming, I'm one of you. It's very odd. Yeah, Mike Gibbons tried to, you know get on his humble beginnings you know we'll see if it it plays in peoria it just might well play in peoria but yeah there's you know and and i think the biggest one i think bernie moreno has a lot of money that he's got about 93.1 million dollars so yeah we got lots of money rolling around yeah they really don't they, they can claim to but they don't really have any understanding of what it's like to be living paycheck to paycheck in much of ohio you're listening to today in ohio We've been talking about building new rail routes tied to Cleveland, but how is Greater Cleveland's major transportation planning agency seeking to improve existing rail travel between Cleveland and Chicago? Laura, we have so many train stories that I think are blah, 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 but this one actually offered some insight. I think I understand now why the only time you can get out of Cleveland on a train is in the wee hours in the morning. Right. So the the idea behind NOACA here is that let's study the train rail we have before we talk about building a new one. So they want to study how to relieve passenger and freight congestion along the 341-mile rail corridor between Chicago and Cleveland. And Congress members are supporting this this push. Marcy Kaptur is spearheading the request, which makes a lot of sense because <laughs> mistake on the lake um, or the snake on the lake, I'm sorry, uh, district runs along a lot of this rail rail uh, line. And she says bottlenecks along the corridor create significant delays for passengers and goods. And the time is right to conduct this comprehensive analysis. And she thinks it'll help post-pandemic economic growth in the Great Lakes region. So NOACA submitted a $2.56 million grant application on Monday. And I, I, I think it's a great idea. I mean, I wonder how many millions of dollars we spend on studies, but you, you got to know how to fix it before you can even before well, you can fix it. Well, if the idea is that we want to make convenient travel between Cleveland and Chicago or anywhere else, you got to be able to leave during, you know, business hours. You don't, you shouldn't have to leave at three or four in the morning. But, but if you leave during business hours and it means you're going to get stuck between freight trains all the way there and not get there in real time, then that doesn't work. And so maybe the best way to spend the money is figure out where the log jams are and build extra rails there so that the passenger trains can go around the others. It's you got the limited capacity of what's there. And if you can at least identify the bottlenecks, this could make 
faster travel, and maybe, just maybe, you could depart at 9 o'clock in the morning <laughs> right. or 1 in the afternoon. Because it's not like you could just take a different route if you're on a train, obviously. And I had a friend that took the train to Rochester for Thanksgiving. He got up at like 4 in the morning to catch it, and then there's an app, so you can watch the trains and, and know when it's going to arrive. And it's like he got to Cleveland, took an Uber there, and just watched the train sit in Lakewood because it was like behind a freight train for an hour and a half. So that was enough to make it be like, I never want to ride a train again. So it could give somebody a really bad experience. So you're right. Like, let's fix this problem and figure out and, and make this route a lot friendlier for people. And then maybe people will be willing to try new rail routes. Because right now, I don't think you're going to get a lot of people that say, yeah, I'm signing up to ride the train to Cincinnati. Well, look, this seems like it should be obvious, but it wasn't. So major points to Grace Gallucci at NOACA for coming up with this idea. Great for everybody to get behind it. Now let's just hope they get the money to do the study. We'll have to see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How are five members of the Central Committee of the Ohio Republican Party demonstrating how fractured the party is and showing some disrespect to Governor Mike DeWine? Lisa, it seems like we have two parties in both the Republican side and the Democratic side all across America. There's the the centrist Republicans and then there's the fringe right Republicans, the anti-vaxxers and all the crazies. But but they're exerting a voice. You have the same thing on the Democratic side, but this is about the Republican Party today. What's happening? Yeah, it's a good old fashioned GOP family feud going on They're, they're The GOP party chair for Ohio, Bob Padichick has been sued by five of the Central Committee members, Joe Miller, Denise Verdi, Mark Bainbridge, Laura Rosenberger, and Joanne Campbell. They're claiming that he mismanaged their finances. This suit was filed in Franklin County, and it goes to a Democratic Common Pleas judge, uh, Jayza Page. It landed in her court. Uh, These five are asking to review also past financial records. They want an audit of 2017 and 2018. They want to ban contributions to Mike DeWine and possibly others. Mike DeWine did get about a half a million dollars from them. Uh, The plaintiff's attorney is a rather interesting fella, Robert Gargaz. He's apparently well known in the state's right wing circles. He uh, ran and lost for Lorraine County prosecutor last year, and he has sued Mike DeWine over the COVID measures that he instated. And uh, He said some crazy stuff. I have to mention this. He said that protesters in Lorraine County should be gunned down and stacked like cordwood if they, you know, threaten to breach any public buildings. This is according to the Lorraine Morning Journal. So, yeah, just a lot of whole or a lot of Republican infighting. And I don't know what good it's going to do, but they certainly have signaled their dislike for Mike DeWine. Although I, I don't understand why you would oppose allowing people to look at your books. I right. mean, this is the party. It's the Republican Party. They're members of the committee, and they should be able to see what they've spent their money on. They also have a somewhat legitimate argument about donations going to Mike DeWine. That donation was last year, and they claim, you know, in off years, we always donate to the incumbent. But there is a challenge by Jim Renacci against Mike DeWine. And should the party be throwing money around in that before the voters have the say on who they want to be their standard bearer? I mean, it, the, the claims they're making do not seem unreasonable, even if their motives are completely sinister. But opening the books is basic. I don't know why the party would fight that unless unless 
they have something they want to hide. Right, right. And, you know, you have to wonder. And sure, there probably maybe was some financial mismanagement, but, you know, maybe they should be careful what they ask for, and hopefully they'll be truthful about what they find. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And like you said, having that judge on the case just adds all sorts of wacky drama. It's a wacky case with wacky plaintiffs, and it's going to be fun to watch how it plays out. It's today in Ohio. How does a new request for cash by some members of Congress in Ohio demonstrate that the restaurant and bar industry has a long way to go before recovering from the pandemic? Laura, I I don't get I don't know how they think just throwing more money at this is going to solve the problem, but they seem to think that will solve the problem. Well, I don't think it'll solve every problem. I don't think it'll make it easy for restaurants to find the staff that they need. But they say there's a lot of food and beverage establishments that never got any money. About 177,000 that applied for money didn't get any. And they're saying that a funding disparity means that small businesses next door to each other have drastically different financial situations. And they want to give these restaurants a chance to succeed just as the ones that did get it. So there was $28.6 billion initially provided that helped more than 101,000 restaurants around the country. Now they are asking for more money. They want to cap the amounts at $10 million per business and $5 million per location, which is a whole lot of money and probably a lot more than most small businesses need. But they did give... In the first round, $7.5 billion to women-owned businesses, a billion dollars to veteran-owned businesses, and $6.7 billion to small businesses with socially and economically disadvantaged owners. So they're saying, look, we spent it on the right people in the first place. We just need to do this again. But how do they know they spent it on the right people? Has there been any audit or any accounting to see if the businesses that got it used it to stay in business? Was there any accounting to show how it was spent or did they just write checks and give it to them? I I mean, mean, I think that's a really good question to ask about all of the stimulus money, right? Where did it go? And did it, was it used by the right people? I mean, when the first reports came out, there were lots of giant companies that were taking advantage of these programs and i don't i mean obviously some of them didn't end up getting the money but no i haven't seen any accounting of saying this many businesses were able to hire this many people and they stayed in business through the you know these many months and compared it to people that didn't i i think that we're still at the point that they're just trying to throw money at the problem and then they're going to study it later there are a lot of people who've been around for decades who remember when we used to worry about things like the national debt and spending. <laughs> no, and, and, but, but they're, they're concerned about stuff like this. It's like you can't just writing, keep writing billion-dollar checks and not make sure it's going to the right place. We, we know that government squanders money. We, we, there's a long history of misdeeds and incompetence. And do do you see any evidence that what's been spent on restaurant and bars to date has worked? And maybe it did. I I, I don't know that it has not or it has, but I would think you'd want some sort of accounting and report on how that money was used before you just start sending more out that your grandchildren and your grandchildren's grandchildren will be paying the bill for. (laughs) 
I, I completely agree with you. You know, every time you drive up 77, um, when you're driving north, it's on the left, that giant billboard that tells you how much each person in America owes for the national debt. And it's like up to like $78,000 per person or something. I mean, it's mind blowing how much money that this government owns and, and, and we're never going to, to dig our way out of it, which is something that we should probably be talking a, a lot about rather than just how much money the government's spending. But I don't think you can point to an industry that has changed more during the pandemic than the restaurant industry. And I think that you're right. We should be looking at it and how it's being spent and what the restaurants are doing to be innovative. But I haven't really seen any accounting at all. Yeah, I know. And Republicans who are listening to this are thinking, this is Joe Biden. He's spending all his money. But let's face it, the Republicans are just as guilty of running up big bills. Trump did it, too. It, right, it's usually a, it's, to different different echelons of people. Yeah, it's just that, but in the past 10 years, we just seem to be spending wantonly, and man, somebody's going to have to pay that bill eventually. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What will two Brattonall residents, both champions of Lake Erie, argue before the Ohio Supreme Court next week to stop the installation of wind turbines in the lake? Lisa, this is kind of a moot point because that whole lake project is broke and it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to find the money to do it. But this is there was a separate set of legal challenges as opposed to financial challenges. This is the final one. Right. What's it about? Yeah, this was uh, the Ohio Supreme Court next week will hear an appeal from these two Brattonall condo owners, Robert Maloney and W. Susan Dempsey. They claim that the Ohio Power Siding Board should not have certified construction of the Project Icebreaker, which is six wind turbines that will generate 20.7 megawatts of power. It's a demonstration product project. Part of their fear is that they feel that this is a demo project that may grow to a thousand wind turbines. But, you know, through this process, and it's been, a, they've made it very hard for Project Icebreaker to succeed, the legislature, quite frankly. And um, they, they were not, the Maloney and Dempsey were not part of a stipulation that resolved some of the concerns that people had about these turbines. Like there was going to be a dusk to dawn ban on them operating that was removed. And then the, the uh, turbines were moved like eight miles offshore when they would have been about three to five miles offshore. I, I, I detected a little bit of nimbyism here. Of course, Bratton Hall is right on the lake. They've lived and enjoyed the lake their whole life, but I, I get the feeling that they just don't want to see wind turbines on the uh, turbines, turbines on the horizon. That's the way I feel. And of course, they talked about bird and bat mortality, which is a big concern. And, uh, but actually there's a study, a promising study out of Norway that was published last year that shows that if you paint one blade of the turbine black, it allows the birds to see it and then avoid it. So anyway, yeah, so we'll see what happens. I, I just, I, I really want this project to succeed. I really want Ohio to move to renewable energy, but we'll just have to see how this plays out. But as you said, Chris, they, they really need money. I mean, they're very short on the funds that they need to do this. Well, and the shortage of money is troubling because there is a fear that's very legitimate by the opponents that when these things finish their natural lives, there'll be no money to go out and remove them. There'll be hulking, you know, interference objects in the lake for boating and other things because it's it's a shoestring operation. And I, I we've heard from lots of people that live along the lake. They don't want to see them out there. They like their views. And you're right. It's nimbyism. 
but but that doesn't mean they don't have legitimate arguments about birds and removal when they finish and it just seems like this thing after all these years is fraught with so many obstacles that it's never going to happen we'll have to see how the supreme court interprets this it'll be interesting to see if the judges ask pointed questions that are about the nimbyism you know preserving your view at the expense of a clean energy uh, experiment you're listening to today in ohio How many news outlets do we think will mention Jeopardy when reporting the story on a possible new job for Richard Cordray, former Ohio Attorney General and former head of the Federal Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? Laura, every time he comes up, the the first thing people say, oh, and he was a winner on Jeopardy. But that was 1987. I I had to look it up because I was like... What? I'm mentioning it, so I guess I'm guilty of the same thing. <laughs> What's the job? Yeah, he was a five-time Jeopardy champion in 1987. That's when he was a law clerk. He has had a lot of different jobs since then. Obviously, I think the most high-profile one where he got fought about a lot was the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as a national job. Now he is currently heading the Education Department division that oversees student loans, And now the White House is considering him to become the Federal Reserve's top banking regulator. So this there's a couple other people that are still being considered for the job. And Cordray won't talk about this, but that's he's one of the names that's being floated around. And we'll have to see if Ohioans like Rob Portman want to support that. Well, he's kind of radioactive, right? Because in the Consumer Protection Bureau, that became a wedge issue. The Republicans hated the existence of the office, and so he became the poster child for the Republicans on what was wrong with that. So why would you nominate somebody that's guaranteed to be a lightning rod for that kind of criticism? I mean, Portman even said, you know, he's been controversial. Yeah, he was controversial. Why go with the controversy? Is it just everybody likes likes Rich Cordray? I mean, maybe he'd be really good at the job. He, he's been a tr- Ohio treasurer. He's been a state representative. He was the state's first solicitor general. He ran against Mike DeWine uh, for governor in 2018. But obviously, heading, you know, he's had financial experience. But um, this, this job has been vacant since Randall queries his term expired in october it's the vice chair for supervision job and bloomberg is reporting that um ex-fed governor sarah bloom raskin's also being con- considered as well as rafael bostic who heads the federal reserve bank of atlanta so there are some people that actually have jobs in the fed that are being considered so i don't know if cordray is the number one choice he's just out there all right well we should create some bingo cards with the word jeopardy on it and see how many times <laughs> it comes up You're listening to Today in Ohio. Will Ohio elections officials let candidates for office use cryptocurrency for donations? And if they do, will those donations count the same as cash? Lisa, it's they're getting ahead of this one, I think, because I don't think the donations have come in this way yet. And they're trying to have some sanity about the way you account for the money. What are the proposed rules? Yeah. And officials with the Ohio Elections Commissions did say that it really isn't currently an issue, but they wanted to get ahead of the technology. So they're issuing a legal advisory on candidates on how to accept Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies and also money from direct payment apps like Venmo. So there, there's a draft advisory and they're going to, it's set for approval tomorrow. 
Um, and they say that Bitcoin is acceptable, but it should be reported as an in-kind contribution. It is still subject to the individual donor maximum limit of $13,074. And then because cryptocurrency, the valuation swings wildly, you know, day to day, week to week, the crypto value will be calculated on the what it's worth was on the day it was donated. So it won't go up, up or down as the cryptocurrency changes. And then, you know, other direct payment apps, if you get something from Venmo or other direct payment apps, it has to go into a separate account. So you have to keep personal and campaign funds separately. So yeah, I give them kudos for trying to get ahead of this before it come, becomes an issue. You know, I, um, I wonder whether this really is ripe for abuse though. If I if I want to get give somebody an enormous amount of help outside of the limits of campaign donations, giving them cryptocurrency in, in and letting it go up if it goes up by staggering amounts before they cash out of it could give them way more than the limits would say. And if I give it to them and it goes down, no harm, no foul. But this just seems like a way for people that want to influence the elections more. To, to possibly have a much bigger impact on it. I mean, cryptocurrency has wild swings, but it, but if somebody sits on it until it goes up rapidly, they can get a lot more money than they would have had coming and outside of the campaign finance limits. Seems risky to me, but we'll have to see how it plays out. It's not that people who donate money are always looking for ways to get around the rules at all. That doesn't happen. Right? <laughs> but they did say it would be calculated on the worth when it was donated. So I'm, if you donated it at X amount of money, then it would stay at that. It, that's the way I read it anyway. Yeah, but I can't donate stock. You know, I can't donate other things that are basically investments to a campaign. If I could, I you know, the, there are people out there w that would look for ways to have a bigger influence by making sure... They got a much bigger chunk of, of cash. I, I don't know. The whole thing seems a little shaky. We'll have to watch how it plays out. And my bet is this isn't the last of the regulations on this kind of donation. Interesting story. Check it out on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Is it possible that this was a student who didn't want to take a test? What's the story behind the theft of nearly three dozen catalytic converters from Cleveland school buses overnight Sunday. Laura, when you take a catalytic converter off a vehicle, you disable that vehicle. Y yes, I don't actually know what a catalytic converter is, but there were a whole bunch taken. I don't think it was a student here. I mean, they'd have to go to this bus bus depot in Cuyahoga Heights on East 49th Street, and basically they somebody cut a hole in the fence. They're reviewing the surveillance video to see about this theft, but um, and they're worth about $2,000 a piece. So I'm guessing somebody is selling these on some kind of catalytic converter black market. But what it ended up doing is delayed pickups for 12 public and private schools on Monday morning. It affected nearly 200 students. But hey, there was still school. They were still expected to go. Okay, I'm going to end it there. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about a bunch of other stories.